and yeah, I released these uh, two. It was two designs of placemats. It was a bear bear shaped one and a bunny shaped one, and I put them out on Instagram um, just to see what people thought, and it kind of went gangbusters. And I had people contacting me asking me if they could wholesale them, and it just it really just took off from there. Hey, and welcome to Smart Online Marketing, where I chat to switched on entrepreneurs and experts to chat about smart strategies to build your business in a profitable and sustainable way. My name is Katie Griffin, and I am in the digital marketing game. I specialize in Google Ads, and I've worked one-on-one with clients such as Showpose, Wilmoka Law, and Snuggle Honey Kids. And I also have my own course, teaching small businesses how to grow profitably using Google Ads. If we haven't met before, I'm a kombucha-loving, real housewives apologist, alongside my love of all things pop culture, and yes, that does include the Kardashians. I'm a mum of two, a self-confessed hippie at heart, with a love of all things business. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this week's episode of Smart Online Marketing. I'm so excited about my guest today, who is Eleanor, and she's the founder and designer at We Might Be Tiny, which is a children's tableware brand, and she's based in Melbourne. She's actually just really close by to me. And she's an ex-user experience designer, so that's a UX designer. And then when she was on maternity leave with her firstborn about five years ago, she was like, I can't find any good tableware that doesn't look really kitty, and I want it to match my decor. She has style, unlike me. <laughs> she was like, I want to create it myself. And she tells me the story about how she turned this little concept into a seven-figure business now. And she only went full-time in this gig 18 months ago, which just blows my mind. Eleanor is a powerhouse and I love chatting to her so much. We get into things like wholesaling, international distribution, copyright issues, and, you know, I just could talk to her for hours. So I think you're really going to love this episode. So Eleanor, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Katie. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a massive fan and I've been listening to your podcast forever. (laughs) Oh God, way to make me nervous now. Um, It's funny because you were talking, we actually live really close together. I forgot that how close we live together, that we probably pass each other on our morning commute. And so you're based in Melbourne in the sort of foothills of the Dandenongs like I am. Yeah. And you own, tell me about your business. What do you do and how did you get started? Okay, it's a long story. So um, I'm so here I'm for found- it. <laughs> I'm the founder of um, We Might Be Tiny, which is a children's tableware brand. Um, as you said, I'm based in Melbourne. And um, yeah, I started the business five years ago, almost five years ago, uh, when I was on maternity leave with my son. And yeah, I was really just looking at the time, I just was looking for some placemats for my son because he'd started feeding and I just wanted to have something nice on the table for him so to protect my table. And I couldn't find anything and I just thought to myself, oh, maybe there's a bit of a gap here and, um, yeah, just started doing some research and came up with um, some designs of my own that I thought I'd test out because, you know, I also um, had a bit of a dream to have my own business too because, you know, thinking about going back to work and knowing that, um, yeah, I wouldn't be able to continue doing what I was doing and still be there for my kids. I kind of knew in the back of my, my mind that I was um, wanting to start my own business. So, yeah, it kind of just went from there. And, yeah, I released these uh, two, it was two designs of placemats. It was a bear, bear-shaped one and a bunny-shaped one. And I put them out on Instagram um, just to see what people thought and it kind of went gangbusters and I had people contacting me, asking me if they could 
wholesale them and it just it really just took off from there and it was it all just went really quickly to be honest yeah do you think that you were at the forefront of that um of that because we've got our firstborns are roughly around the same age yeah and I even think back to being pregnant with my daughter she was born in January of 2015 and then the pregnancy of my second born which was she was born in the middle of 2018 and it felt like there was such a big um change just in the offerings in like just breastfeeding clothing and yeah um, sure. kid stuff and it felt like like maternity where I felt like even in that the three years between those pregnancies it was a really big growth in that market would you Definitely. agree I totally agree I like yeah, maternity wear as a really good example. I don't even remember buying maternity wear. I just I bought just loose clothing. Yeah, me too. Or well, stuff from like ASOS that you know yes. could just stretch. Yeah, me um, too. Yeah, there just wasn't really. Oh, otherwise you'd have to go. And there was a couple of shops like Ripe, for example, or and that's know. all. Where the only place I bought was Ripe, and I just yeah. bought like black harem pants and yeah, like exactly black stretchy tops. It's just really changed, I think. Um, and yeah, the, it was the same with um, with kids products as well. So. I found that, you know, you would go to, um, you know, there would be baby bunting and you'd get some really sort of bright coloured, you know, character kind of stuff. And it was just not, it was just not me and not what I wanted in my house. It was very like um, kitschy or you'd go to like uh, Ikea and it'd be these fluoro coloured like bowls and stuff. So you just felt like you you couldn't find anything that you wanted. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't something, I didn't want to, I didn't want to fill my house with all this kid stuff that I just want to hide. That was kind yeah. of what, and then it, so it sort of started from there and I thought, well, I'll, I'll have a go at doing these placemats in colours that I would have in my house, the colours that would match my current with my decor. And, yeah, and I, and I think it just resonated with people and, yeah, it kind of just went from there. So when you say you put it on Instagram, is that just like your personal Instagram profile? No, I set up an account. Um, so I set up the account, We Might Be Tiny, so I came up with my name and, and, and set up an account and started following some accounts that I really liked and, yeah, just started, I guess, playing around and um, engaging with other accounts. And then, yeah, then I just started sharing photos of, of the samples. And there's a big, there's obviously been a lot that's happened, say, in the last five years, and now you have, you've grown that into like a seven-figure business. So there's been a lot of, of changes that have happened in that time. Yeah. Can you take me back before we dive into what you've kind of done to grow this really successful business? What were you doing before that? Like you said that you whipped up some placemat. Like if that was me, I'd be like, where do I start? I don't even know what I would do. Yeah. Like <laughs> how did you have the skills to be able to do that? Yeah. Okay. So um, my background is user experience design. So I've actually been working in digital for almost well, probably 20 years. I started, wow. actually started back in the olden days. <laughs> yeah, in, in 1999, actually, I started um, in corporate um, working on websites. Um, and that was back when we were using like, you know, Dreamweaver and mm. all that kind of, all those like, yeah, there was no, e-commerce wasn't a thing. There was no Shopify. Yeah, no. there was no Shopify. <laughs> um, so I've been working in the in web um, for a long time. And then I sort of slowly moved into user experience design, which is about in designing interfaces. So mobile apps, mobile interfaces, websites, that kind of thing. So I guess design has always kind of been in my blood. Um I've always loved design. I've, I don't have any design training, but it's just my, yeah, it's just what I love. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and I had, I guess I had the skills in Photoshop, so I knew how to use Photoshop and I just, yeah, just had to play around and, and came up with the designs through, using Photoshop actually. Wow. 
Okay. So you, you put these designs out on Instagram, you realize, okay, there might be something here that, that is needed in the market. What do you do then? Like there's a lot of, um, a lot of behind the scenes stuff that needs to go into having the infrastructure behind you, like setting up a website. And I'm sure you were probably had some skills that were, yeah, that lent themselves to that, that you were a little bit more ahead of the, um, the average person that's setting up a, a business, but yeah. it's still challenging. Yeah. Like I was pretty lucky, I guess, cause I did have, I did know all of that stuff around, um, setting up websites and, and how to manage a digital or how to manage a product. Um, so yeah, being, a UX designer, I also understood product management. Um, what does that mean, product management? Like, I guess understanding. So, in my in my role, just previous to when I resigned, was managing a whole managing a website, and you know, coming up with a roadmap of all the different things that needed to be on the website, and understanding the user experience of that website. So, you know, from how a customer would arrive on the site, what they would expect to see. So, I understood. I, I guess I understood all of that. Like the customer what, journey on the website, exactly. Sort of thing. Yeah. 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 So I was, I guess I was able to, to do that myself, which obviously saves a lot of money. Like if you didn't, I guess if you didn't know those things, it would, you know, you'd have to spend a bit of money, um, potentially getting someone to build your website and design the navigation and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, so you set, you set up a site, um, and how do you start to get the word out there besides Instagram? Like how do you, how do you get people to buy from you? To begin with, it was really just Instagram. So I just started sharing um, that way, obviously creating, um, I created a Facebook page and I, and I think back then too, it was a lot easier to get your product out there on Instagram. It was yeah. that, it was the feed of everything that was there. It wasn't, you know how they currently, they, they've got the algorithm now that only shows yes. you some things. So back then, if I posted something, people would see it. Yeah. Um, There's a lot more so, cut through. Yeah. So it really just grew that way. Um, and then what happened was, as I said, I started to get some wholesale customers and so they would start obviously getting their, um, their stock and then they'd start sharing their brand. So it was a bit, um, yeah, it just kind of grew organically like that. And I guess the other benefit, um, with my product is because it is, um, a kid's placemat that people and people love taking photos of their kids' food. So I was getting a lot of tags and a lot of shares online. So people were, yeah, just naturally sharing their, their placemats and their, their setup of their kids' table. Um, so it was really lucky like that. Um, yeah, I, think in the, I think in the mum community that um, you can tap into a lot of organic sharing there because mums, when they find something that work, works or find something that they love that maybe someone else doesn't know about, they want to share it. It's like this community of people that want to give other people information. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I don't think there's necessarily that camaraderie in other uh, in other yeah. industries maybe. Whereas yeah, with the mum and baby, agree. it's like you've got to get on this kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. I agree. And there's you now have a lot of international distribution as well. So you're stocked in, what is it, over 40 countries? Yeah. That's got to be kind of mind-blowing and a lot of logistics goes into that how do you even get started with international distribution actually let's back up how do you even get started with wholesaling like there must be a learning curve that goes into you know you can sell direct to consumer and someone place an order on your website you can ship it out that's a pretty standard path but how do you then get used to dealing with wholesalers which is a different like that's b2b yeah um that's been just a massive learning curve for me as well. Obviously, I'd never, I'd never really even worked in retail apart from being a checkout chick once at Coles. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really understand the whole structure. Um, but 
Yeah, I guess from the very beginning, and I should back up a little bit, I did actually, so when I started this business, I did actually put together a bit of a marketing plan. So I worked out. You're like the only um, one that I've spoken to who's oh, really? done that. Yeah. Everyone's like, and the I only reason The only reason I did that is because I just started my MBA as well. So my first subject was marketing and I had to do, as my first project was a marketing plan. And I was like, well, why don't, why don't I do my business? Yeah. Um, so I did actually do a proper marketing plan, which had to, so I had to think through pricing. So I yes. think that was one of the one of the things I did um, right um, up front is that I got the pricing right so that when it came time for people to ask me about wholesale I could I could do it and I fa- had factored that in the margins in. That's so interesting because I think a lot of people don't. Um, I'll have a lot of students or even clients that will come to me and they will have got such tight margins that it doesn't allow for wholesale or it doesn't even allow for like add cost on top of that, like the cost of acquisition to acquire a customer. And I don't think that's taught very widely about how to really price your, your products so that you're like, there's, you can still be competitive and profitable at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the way that I, I guess I navigated wholesale was I was involved in a lot of different Facebook groups. So as you said, there's a lot of um, mum Facebook, particularly business mum Facebook groups that I was part of. And I kind of just got information from those. So I just, you know, would do a bit of research, chat to a few different people and and find out and understand a little bit more about what margins people are expecting um, and what things you need to do. Like, for example, having a lookbook or a whole, you know, catalogue putting together a, a price list. So asking people that are looking to be like a stockist and asking them what they sort of look for in, in yeah, both, a supplier. Yeah, both. So people who have done wholesale as well oh, okay, as, yep. as people who are looking for, to yeah, to be a stockist. So, yeah, that was, I, I find, I, I would say that a lot of my knowledge from that area has come from the Facebook groups that I was part of. So, yeah, that was, um, yeah, really good to be part of those and, yeah, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like, you know, 10 years ago trying to do this without all of those resources available to me. So, um, so yeah, I guess just setting up the, the pricing structure right, having all of the, the information to send. I then created like a wholesale um, application form so that people could come onto our website and, and express interest in wholesale. And, yeah, that was um, that was kind of how I you know, how I um, started in wholesale, I did find it quite overwhelming. Um, so I I was still working at that time. So I only quit my job 18 months ago. Oh, my God. So, I, so for the first three and a half years of my business, I was trying to work full-time and do this. Wow. Um, so, you know, there's some things I didn't, I obviously didn't do right. I dropped the ball so many times because I was juggling too many things. And why did you, why was it that you took that time? Was it because you just didn't have the systems and the profitability in the business that you were willing to take that leap of faith earlier? Yeah, I was a bit, um, I think I'm not, not a massive risk taker. I like to have, like, I've never, um, I've never borrowed money for the business and that's something that I, I don't want to have to do. And so Mm. I didn't, and I didn't want to get into a position where I had to you know, I guess borrow money for anything. So that was I, I was I, got, I was a bit cautious and wanted to make sure that I hit a certain mark before I quit my job. Um, I also knew that I wanted to, to back then. I also knew that I wanted to have another baby. Um, so and yeah, I wanted to get maternity leave. From, yes, from my other from my other job. So that was part of the plan. It was a bit of a a, a long term. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Um, 
I think that, you know, people don't realize like when you have your own business, you then don't get necessarily those sort of luxuries because you're the one that's um, running the ship. Yeah, exactly. And you do have to, like I look back between baby one and two, there was a three and a half year year age gap and I worked predominantly full-time during that time. And I look back now, I'm like, how the hell did I do that work full-time? And then when I went on mat leave with um, my second daughter, I felt like I had this like a bit of a grief moment where I was mourning the period that I didn't necessarily get with my eldest. Not that she knew, but did you ever feel like that, like you experienced, you felt like you were working because I worked a, um, a job. I didn't have my business then and I was working full time, but I knew that it was for the greater good that ideally when I had my second baby, then I'd start a business and then I'd take a slower approach where I would have a part-time, you know, work part-time and it was all for the greater good. Yeah. But there is a lot of that grief attached to it. Like what did I sacrifice for that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, even, even though I did have maternity leave with my second one, you would have been working. During, yeah, during that time on maternity leave, I was obviously working on my business. So I didn't have that, those days that I would just go to the shops and just stroll around. I didn't do that kind yes. of thing with my second one. Yeah, um, and I didn't do that with my first born. And then I did that with my second born. Yeah. And I was like, there's such different experiences with, you know, maternity leave when it's yeah. one, you know, and, and I had such a more enjoyable time with the second maternity leave that it's, yeah that I kind of mourned that period that I didn't have with Willow, even though we were so like, we obviously had such a um, close relationship with other areas that other areas that we did. And she didn't know that I didn't walk her around the park for 20 hours a week. You know, (laughs) she had no idea, but I knew. Yeah. And also because your time's also split between the first as well. So you've got even less time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you look back now and wish you'd taken the jump earlier or does it, you think it was the exact right time? If I, yeah, obviously I had to go back and do and work again after maternity leave. So I kind of was obligated to go back, but I wish that I had have probably left six months earlier because I, I did notice that the year that I didn't leave, I had stagnated a little bit mm. in my revenue. Like I, um, I pretty much had the energy to pour into. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I just hadn't grown as as people were expecting me to. So obviously I, you know, I started off with the placemats and then people were asking what next, what next? And I didn't turn around products as quickly as I probably should have back then. Um, now that I've got the space and the time I am doing it and it's really, it's, it's been very um, effective for the business to have new, new products being released all the time. And so we talked a bit about getting into wholesaling. You felt that was down to your head, sort of your pricing down right? That strategy. How does that then move into international distribution? Like, do you get approached by someone? Do you do trade fairs? Like, how do you get into that market? I, so I was approached by um, someone in South Korea to begin with, and that was a bit of a wow moment. That was only maybe four months after I started the business and someone emailed me and said, we love your placemats and we'd love to place an order for a thousand. And I was just like, what? (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, then I realized that, Hey, you know, people wanted to distribute. And, um, so that was a whole new, new thing to learn and understand. Um, and from there it kind of snowboarded, I guess, because I had, I'd gone through it with one distributor. Once someone else approached me, I could then say, Hey, are you interested in distributing, distributing in your region as well? Um, so you kind of gain the confidence from that first one to then be able to do it with other. Yeah. Yeah. 
And what I was finding too, because I was sending out wholesale orders all around the world, that it was just costing too much. So I I would get the stock into Australia and then I would have to package you know, boxes and boxes of stuff and ship it over to Denmark, for example. And it would cost like $500 just Mm. to send like these boxes over and it would really cut into their margin. So it, I, it made sense to me that I would have to move towards the distributed, you know, to, to having distributors around in different regions so that they could actually fulfill the orders for the different regions. And at this stage, are you packing, are you packing those orders yourself? I was for the first Probably for the first year and a bit, I was packing orders myself. So I, my, yeah, my study was just filled with boxes and I would do it every night after work and it was, yeah, it wasn't fun really. <laughs> <laughs> and then you invested in a third-party logistic, logistics Yeah, so then after, after it just became too much and I had too many products, I then, um, and actually the other thing was I was about to go on an overseas trip, so I went to um, Scandinavia in 2017 and so I was taking five weeks off and I knew that I wouldn't be able to pack orders. So I had to, I had to, it forced me into doing a 3PL. Yeah. So Cause were you sort of before that you were four, you couldn't really take time off because you were the one, yeah. yeah, you were the one physically tied to the business. Yep, exactly. So and 3PLs are like, is there a learning curve there where you've got to find, oh, let's, for those that don't know what a 3PL is, can you give an overview on that? And what are the benefits of having one of those? Yeah, so uh, 3PL is third-party logistics, but it's essentially, you know, having a warehouse with uh, staff who um, pick and pack and ship your items for you. So sometimes you might, you know, some companies choose to have their own dedicated warehouse where they have their own staff doing that, but you can get a centralised, you know, company to do it for you and they might do lots of different brands. Um, and they, I guess the benefits of having one is that they can negotiate really good rates with some of the um, postage services. Mm, so I have doing quite a lot good, of bulk. Exactly. Yeah. I have re- some really good rates with um, the couriers and with Australia Post because they're doing so much more volume than what I could potentially do. Um, so you're pulling all of that, yeah, the power together, I guess. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I went down the path of, of getting a 3PL back then and yeah I I trialed that for a little bit I had some issues with them they were they were really good and good at the time but as my as my range started to get a little bit complicated and I brought some new products in and because I've got so many different color ranges there was there ended up being I think at the time there was probably 30 or 40 SKUs um, and it was a lot to manage Mm. And they were making mistakes and I just, yeah. I couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Because um, that reflects also, badly. They, the customer doesn't understand that it's not you packing yeah, the order. Yeah. And you're exactly. the one that gets in trouble for it. Yeah. Um, and th- at the same time too, my wholesale was really growing and I was finding that I couldn't manage my wholesale any customers anymore. So I'd be getting emails from people and I just couldn't even, I just couldn't manage it all. And so I ended up getting an agent, a wholesale agent within Australia who could, who was also her suits. She took over all of my wholesale accounts and also looked after the pick and pack. So I moved everything to her. She she did all of that for probably about a year until I, um, and that was fantastic for me because I was just, you know, too busy working at the same time. Um, and that worked out really well for me. But then it started getting quite expensive because it, it wasn't, I, I wasn't getting really good rates or anything. Uh, and also they were, uh, as an agent, they were taking a 15% cut of, um, of my wholesale as well. So Mm. it was eating into my margin. And that's when I started to realize when I started looking at the numbers, saying that my business was a bit stagnant because Mm. I wasn't there to, to manage all those little things and look for the, 
for the best way to do things. How do you, how do you even, though, just before that, how do you even get like, how do you even find these, like who, who's helping you along the way to like find an agent, find a 3PL? Like are you just winging it and learning as you go? So the 3PL, I, yeah, I, that was just research. So I just, I think I put a call out on one of those Facebook groups and someone recommended them. So I just, yeah, went and visited them and checked it all out. And that was a bit of a guess. Um, the agent actually approached me. So I did a, I had been doing a couple of trade shows. So I did, I probably did three trade shows on my own. Um, and she was actually there representing some other brands that she was, um, she was representing. Uh, and she saw me on my lonesome trying to set up this whole stand by myself, trying to do everything myself. And she came over and just said, Hey, you know, we would love to represent you. And I was like, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I would love that too, because I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, having to set up a stand all, all on your own and um, yeah, it was just too much for me. So I was really grateful for that. And so after the agent, then when do you go from there? So then once, um, once I had the agent, um, so that was for a little while, that was probably a year or so. And that's after that point is when I um, quit my job and I started working full-time in this business. And that's when I decided I needed to um, bring it all back in-house and, and manage it all myself. And so that at that point, I moved all my stock up to Sydney to a new 3PL. So I found a new 3PL. Again, that was just research and, and finding something that suited. Yeah, moved everything up there and it's been up there ever since. So for 18 months now, and it's been just amazing because they're just, yeah, they're efficient they've got really good pricing they they manage lots of different brands and they just know what they're doing they're professionals in it so and then you also don't have to deal with like hiring warehouse staff and yeah you don't that's kind of all taken care of yeah exactly okay so you've got your wholesale kind of nailed down in Australia how then how do you find because you can't physically go to these other places when you've got like when you've got a distribution center in like Denmark, for example. Yeah. Are they in like three PLs as well? Yeah. I believe some of them have their own, some of them have their own warehouse where they bring in staff and pick them back. And then some of them do have, yeah, their own three PL companies as well. So there's a bit of a combination and I guess the other benefit of having the distributors is they, they are attending trade shows on my behalf. So one of the, I've put obviously put together contracts for each of them and one of the things is that they need to um, meet certain targets uh, each year. Mm. So they need to make a certain number of sales each year to retain their distributorship. And so therefore they'll go to do big trade shows. Um, and my, I've got a German uh, distributor and he goes to the big um, Kinderjugend, which is a huge international trade fair. He does that every year. And as a result, a whole lot of other distributors come, a whole lot of wholesalers from all different countries come and have approached him and said, can you give me the details for Eleanor because I want to get in contact with her because we'd love to, we'd love to um, represent her in Canada, for example. So yeah. it's, been, it's been amazing that, yeah, this network of, I've got kind of like this network of support through my wholesalers and through my distributors that has just naturally occurred, which is, yeah, it's just been fantastic. And so you're in 40 over 40 countries. How many international distributors would you have servicing um, those markets? I've got 18 18. Now. Okay. Yeah. So that's a lot. So yeah. are, you, are you managing all of that by yourself? Yep. Wow. 
Yes. So I manage all my my, all my international distributors and now I manage all my Australian wholesale as well. So it's a lot of work and I need to, that's something that my goal for 2021 is to slowly start start to outsource and start to bring some help in. Yeah. It's just becoming way too much for me. Yeah. I I just, that just sounds like such a lot. Yeah. You're trying to navigate logistically that would eat away from the time of like product development and all that sort of stuff. So is that kind of where you're wanting to get to? Yeah, exactly. I'd love to, and and just be better planned at things. So I I feel like sometimes I'm quite reactive and yeah, I would love to just, yeah, just get a little bit of help and a little bit of help trying to plan things and plan my marketing out properly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is a good problem to have, right? Your products are obviously so incredible that people really want to get their hands on it and want to stock it and it's going really well. What do you think's been the key to that? Like, do you think it's just that there was that gap in the market that wasn't being, surely other competitors have come in in that space. What is making your brand different? Well, I guess, yeah, it's a good question. My my products are all unique, so I don't use, um, I guess, off-the-shelf um, molds that a lot of, uh, like I have noticed a lot of, there's a lot of new silicon tableware brands on the market and a lot of them are using just these standard ones that you, you can buy off any factory and you can just basically say I'll have, you know, 10 of those in, in this colour. Oh, so they're kind of like, um, you know, not, it might not be like, but you go to Alibaba, for example, and yeah. say I want to get these. Okay. Yeah, and then they'll just put their brand on the front of it. So something that I've I've been very conscious of is making sure that I'm I'm providing something very unique. So every single design that I do is completely unique to We Might Be Tiny. So it's not, um, yeah, I guess it's it's just trying to have a little point of difference. Um, the other thing that I try and emphasise in my marketing is is around the, um, the testing that I do. So obviously every product is tested to European standards. And, and why European? Are they like the best standards? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, yeah, I've always gone for European because that's the, that's, I guess, the, the one that you want to aim for. And yeah, I think just yeah, having the pricing right, you know, and providing marketing materials and I guess just making it as easy as possible for wholesalers and distributors. So I, I regularly update my product photography and just give them resources that they can have to easily sell the product. Mm. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think that's, that's helped. And when you say that you've that's kind of your edge, having that point of difference of being a unique product, unique designs. Have you come up with any copyright people trying to steal those designs? Oh my God, so many. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you handle those? Because again, that yeah. would be something that you're delving into for the first time. Yeah. What do you that, do? And how do you get, a, how do you, how are you aware of it? Does a customer say, hey, I was just seeing this knockoff? Yeah, it's been a constant battle and it's really, really painful. Um <laughs> The um, the first time it happened was before I even released the product. So as I, you know, how I say, <laughs> you know how I said I shared the shared the samples yeah. on Instagram. Well, obviously someone saw them and decided to copy them before I'd even released them. So that was oh my god, that was really annoying. Um, and that, I learned my lesson from that. So do not share samples before you've actually got them design patent patented. So um, is everything that you have. Patenton, patented. Yeah, I can't even say. say. It. It's such a hard word. Which yeah. essentially protects what is that? That protects the design um, from then being replicated. And yeah. is that, that would have to add another level of cost to each yeah. of the products as well. Yeah, that's right. It does. Um, so, and it's not, you know, it's not foolproof either because you need to 
to be, you would need to actually register it every single country. So, yes, you know, I've registered mine in China, which is where my products are manufactured because, yeah, that's where um, the copying kind of happens mm-hmm. usually. But, um, yeah, I'm not fully protected because someone in, you know, another country could potentially still copy it and I, I don't really have a lot of legal rights there. Mm. Um, is that frustrating? Hopefully they're not listening to this. Yeah, sorry, I'll block the distribution <laughs> from everywhere but China and Australia. Um, are you? Does that frustrate you? Like, does that really does. Yeah. get annoying? I yeah, it's been a it's been tough because I so I see them all the time. They're still all, my products are still all over Alibaba, um, and I it actually breaks my heart to look at it. And so I'm not on top of it because I. Um, every time I look at it, I just, yeah, I just feel sick and I just don't like dealing with it. But I do every now and then I do jump on and, and shut them down. I send my certificates and, and just say, can you please remove this? They, you know, they've even used images of my son to promote the facts, <gasps> you know, like, yeah, it's really, it's quite frustrating. They just use whatever images they want. Can you spin it around in that, uh, even though it's so frustrating and really annoying, that it means you must be doing something right if people want to copy it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, you, I guess so. But it's it is still frustrating, nonetheless. Yeah, I, like I, that would be that really, you know, be so. I, I've even had it where people have downloaded some of my course material and then put it on for oh. free, and it's you know it's just stuff that's like that. That's you've put your um, a lot of your effort, and that's your IP, and yeah. then you ca- you can't really protect yourself from every single situation, and you just yeah. kind of have to have a way that it doesn't get you down so much that yeah you can't move forward yeah I mean the way that I, I guess I've I've tried to overcome it is by just continuing to build and strengthen my brand because yes. at the end of the day that can't be copied what, yeah that can't be copied and and that's why I'm continually looking at releasing new products like I'm not staying stagnant because the moment you're stagnant people will just start copying them and then yeah those products will be yeah done so and I think that's where you've got to have the edge is anyone can copy a design, but you've got to have the other pillars of the business that, like I see, you'll see pop up in um, a lot of those mum Facebook groups as well as they will have got, they'll be the same, like you said, they'll be the same design and they'll just slapped a brand name on it, which yeah. is, I mean, each to their own. You can do yeah. whatever business you want. Yeah. But you then have to cultivate you have to have some point of difference to cultivate the brand around that to have, so you're not just competing on price because you don't want to be just be competing on price. Yeah. So you've got to have, so how have you strengthened the other pillars of your business? Like your social media, your reviews, your customer loyalty. How have you, um, how have you built the other aspects of the business that it has been able to protect you in some respect from the copying stuff? Um, good question. Um, (laughs) I I mean, I've, um, yeah, I've just, I've concentrated on building up, you know, building up my email list. Um, I guess just building up some loyal fans, like, you know, offering them incentives, that kind of thing. Um, appearing at markets. Like I go, I do some of the big, um, the big markets, like finest keepers and one fine baby, those kind of things just to strengthen and reinforce the, the brand. Um, so yeah, just, I guess just some of those things really. Just keeping like having a, a presence rather than just relying on the website. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just can't even imagine, or, I mean, looking back, could you have believed that this would be happening five years later? Like no way. this little placemat 
image that you shared on, on social media. <laughs> no way. Like I honestly, my goal. So when I started the business, my goal was to basically sell my 2000 place mats and I sold them within a month. And, wow. then, I was, and then I was just like, what, what do I do now? And You're like, Where's my next goal? Yeah. So no, I had no idea that it would grow to this and that I would, it would actually be a business that, you know, would mean I would be able to quit my job and um, incredible and sustain, you know, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. And I, I just absolutely love it. Like I'm, yeah. I'm sure that you find it exactly the same. Just, I've never felt so fulfilled in a, in a career and I love, I wake up every day and just can't wait to work. Yes. Yeah. And isn't it, you just do feel very privileged at the position that you have um, autonomy to a certain degree in your business and yeah. you get to do what you love to do and that you feel like you're making a good, a good difference. Yeah. And you, yeah, I, it's a really lovely, like lovely place to be in. You've got to put in a lot of hard work, you know, like we've talked about, you've had three years of juggling full-time work, two kids, basically a full-time side business as well, navigating all these challenging areas, but you can come out the other side and have a really um, beautiful business that you're able to incorporate into your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what is the goal next? Like what is the goal for We Might Be Tiny? Um, I think next Sell year. Sell 2,000 really, more placements. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I look, I'm just looking at growing and expanding. So I've got another 10 products in the pipeline at the moment that I'm looking to Is release. that the part that you love the most? Sorry, I do. Like the product yeah. development. That seems to be the part that lights you up a lot. Yeah, I do. I love it. It's just and I get I have so so it, the great thing is people are always giving me ideas as well. Yes. People are saying, "Oh, you should do this, or you should do that." So it's it's quite easy um, to come up with new ideas. Um, but yeah, I love that process of getting the samples and and doing the whole, you know, designing the packaging for it and and getting the photos done and releasing. I love that whole process. Um, so yeah. it seems like you do need to get that logistic side off your plate because maybe that's the part that doesn't yeah. give you as much joy and that it's probably not utilizing your skills as much as the creative side because no one else can do that but you. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, yeah, I would love to get my business to a point where everything's a bit more systematized and I've got, um, you know, I could potentially hand over things like say, okay, and and get it. I haven't even got a VA. So even just being able to pass on and say, you know, can you please post post this on my blog, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) You're breaking my heart here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I just, I, I feel like everything's in my head and I yes, don't have it written down. you need down to get it down. Yet. Yeah. You and so, at, you know, at the moment, in a way, I was just saying this to my husband yesterday, my business is worth nothing because it's all in my head. And if, if you know, if something was to happen to me, it, it would all just disappear. So I need to start systematizing and yes. yeah, just getting documentation, standard operating procedures, that kind of thing. And it's like, it's such a big, um, it's a time chunk at the start, but you get the benefits month on month. Like at the start when you're documenting your standing operating procedures and you're getting all these um, systems up and running, that's you, it's a lot of legwork getting it up. But then you get to benefit from that for years to come because you don't have to do those things anymore. Yeah. So it's like short-term pain, mm-hmm. long-term gain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just can't wait to be in that in that position. That, yeah. yeah. Well, I've just loved having you on. You're fascinating and such a like amazing business that you've built. I think that like you probably don't take the time to look back and think how incredible it is the I mean, business that you've built in a relatively short period of time, like five years, only eighteen months of that working full time. I mean, I just think you're amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> can you tell everyone where they can 
shop online from you and connect with you on online as well. Yeah, sure. So I've got I've got two websites. We might be tiny.com.au and we might be tiny.com. So that's my US website. Um, and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter. Uh, at all, the be, yeah, all the socials. All the socials at We Might Be Tiny. Well, thank you so much. It's been incredible to have you on. Thank you. You too. How fabulous was Eleanor? The worst thing about this podcast is every time I have a guest on, it makes me go and want to like buy everything on their site. So <laughs> it's like bad for my hip pocket. But anyway, Eleanor is amazing. She was such a great person to talk to and so inspirational with her with her story. And she just got so many things on her plate and somehow manages to get everything working. I, I just can't even believe what she's what she's able to achieve. So make sure you do connect with her online. Go visit her site. Check it out. It's the, just got the most gorgeous, beautiful stuff. And you can find me. I mostly hang out on Instagram. And I'm at Katie Griffin underscore, or you can visit my website, sundaydigital.com.au and, um, you know, do all the things, leave a review, blah, 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 you know the drill. And I will catch you on the next episode.